This is an AMI podcast. Hello, I'm Joyita Gupta, host of The Pulse on AMI Audio. It's a show featuring in-depth conversation about the biggest challenges facing the disability community. With today's fast-paced news cycles, it's often hard to get the big picture. Join me and other members of the disability community as we take a deeper dive into the issues that matter to you. Listen to The Pulse wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Hey, today I'm paddling my canoe over to an island. Today it's all about islands. We got Miss Lily gonna school us on some island knowledge all about Canada and our amazing islands, turns out. We've got some information about a couple that created their own floating island. That's a guest feature. We're gonna talk to the executive director and Upper St. Lawrence Riverkeeper about his fascination and compulsion to go live on an island in the St. Lawrence River. I'll meet you back at the island. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Lily, what amazing information do you have in store for us today? Did you know that three Canadian islands are among the top ten largest islands in the world? That's pretty cool. The islands are Baffin, Ellesmere, and Vancouver. Ellesmere and Baffin? Mm-hmm. Up in the Arctic? Yeah. Huh. I'm going to test your knowledge about Canada's islands. Okay. Okay. Question one. How many of Canada's 20 largest islands are located in the Arctic archipelago? Definition of an archipelago is a group of islands. Okay. Archipelago. Arctic. Your choices are A, 4, B, 8, C, 12, or D, 16. Oh, you know, if you're not sure, go C. So it's C, 12. So 12? Yeah. Mm, no, the answer is D. 16 of Canada's largest islands are located in the Arctic archipelago. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. The Arctic archipelago is situated north of Canada has about 94 main islands and over 36,000 minor islands, covering an area of 1.4 million square miles. That's huge. Now that we know that 16 of Canada's 20 largest islands are in the Arctic, can you name the remaining four? No. No? (laughs) No. Canada's other four largest islands are Newfoundland, Vancouver Island, Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia, and Anticosti Island in Quebec. Huh. Okay. Now PEI. No PEI mentioned in there. PEI is tiny. I guess so. It's so little. What the heck? (laughs) Yes or no? The St. Lawrence River has the largest freshwater archipelago in the world. I'll give you a hint. Okay. It's called the Thousand Islands. That's a lot of islands? I'm going to say yes. No. The answer is no. It's Georgian Bay in central Ontario. The Georgian Bay Archipelago is the world's largest archipelago with over 30,000 islands. They're not just talking about rocks sticking out of the water. These are actual actual islands. islands. Yeah, Yeah. that's cool. Canada has a little-known island within an island in the Arctic measuring about four acres. Part of why it is mostly unknown is that it is pretty much inaccessible, being located 120 kilometers inland on Victoria Island. Victoria Island itself is located between Nunavut and the Northwest Territories, and is the 8th largest island in the world. Wow, Victoria Island, 8th largest island in the world. And it has an island within an island. Mm-hmm. Very cool. It's that big. Yeah. Um, can you name the island that has the world's largest freshwater lake? No. no? But I bet you it's in Canada. No. <laughs> 
It's Nunavut's Baffin Island, and the lake is called Nettling Lake. Nettling Lake. Nettling. Okay. Uh, biggest freshwater lake on an island? Yeah. Neat. Um, what about this? Can you name the world's largest island located on a freshwater lake? Yes, I can. Oh, it's yeah? Manitoulin Island, and you've been there. We've camped there. I don't remember being in Manitoulin Island. It was a long time ago. Manitoulin Island is located between Lake Huron and Georgian Bay. Okay. It's also home to the world's largest freshwater lake located on a freshwater island. The lake itself is called Lake Manitoulin. That's very cool. Okay, last question. What's the name of the world's largest uninhabited island? No idea. It's Devon Island. Devon Island. I'm guessing in the Arctic again? Uh, located along Canada's northern coast in the Arctic archipelago, between two of the world's top ten largest islands, Baffin and Ellesmere. Okay. While both Baffin and Ellesmere have a small permanent population, Devon Island is the largest uninhabited island in the world. Wow. That's not to say no one has ever spent the night on Devon Island. In 1960, a research station was established on Devon Island, and in 2017, Devon Island played host to a team of six would-be astronauts. The reason for their two-month stay on the island was to experience what it might be like to live on the planet Mars. Wow. The six astronauts spend their two months studying the island's lichens, geology, and ice. Cool. So what island in Canada would you most like to live on? Well, I always got a little piece of my heart left in Cape, Cape Breton. Breton Island. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, where I had my cabin. That was before you were around. I'll yeah. bring you there someday. Yeah, <laughs> I hope I want to go. Well, I know. I want to. I want you to see it. It's gorgeous. Thanks, Lily. Yeah. Time for the bucket list. Here's a special podcast guest feature all about a couple that built their own island, a floating island, along the coast of Vancouver Island. I'm Drew Beebe, and this is Great Big Story. Today, we'll hear from producer Samantha Stamler. She traveled to the floating home off the coast of Vancouver Island in Canada. This part of Canada has some of the most breathtaking views I've ever seen. It is full of lush greenery and the sounds of wildlife. Catherine and Wayne's little piece of the world is known as Freedom Cove, and getting there was not easy. They are 10 miles from the nearest town, but you can't get there by car. So we arrived by boat. Hi, Wayne. We made it. We were greeted by Wayne, Catherine. And their two chihuahuas. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm great. We're finally here. Probably tired. You know what? We have a whole new burst of energy. This place is so beautiful. How could you not? Catherine is in her early 60s. She is kind and thoughtful. She is a dancer and a yogi and has a thin frame, but long, thick, dark hair with these wispy gray streaks. Wayne, who is a few years older, looks like a true outdoorsman, but one that sports a thick white mustache and a newsboy cap. He often mumbled through his thoughts, but I appreciated his easygoing nature. Catherine and Wayne's home is like a page out of a Dr. Seuss book. The first thing you notice is that the entire island is painted magenta with a dark turquoise trim. From their dock, 
two giant whale ribs open to a web of pathways lined with netting, tarps, and potted plants. A dozen wooden buildings are scattered throughout the entire complex, everything from these small storage sheds to larger cabins. And everything is built on a base made up of 41 interconnected platforms. In most areas, you're walking on metal grates. You can actually see the water down below. Altogether, this place is surprisingly big. To put it in city terms, it's about the size of two city lots. It's about 500 tons, a million pounds that I'm flowing. It's attached to shore with long lines, and those long lines all have heavy weights on them, chain. And I'm floating freely on the ocean with it. And they've packed a lot into this space. We have different areas in our home where we do different things. We have our main living house. Which includes your typical rooms, a kitchen, a living room, a dining area. A small waterfall is what provides us with our water. And they actually have a working bathroom. We have a floating tank. Over six months, we tow it out. And it's a very simple system. And being artists, they have plenty of space to do their artwork. We have the gallery area. We have the dance floor. They have two garages for their boats. They have a lighthouse building, and they have six solar panels. But what was most impressive of all was the sheer number of plants and winding gardens all over the island. Try and create a little divots for leaks. That helps them uh, stay blanched at the bottom. We have four greenhouses. The garden area really takes over the whole system. There are many sections with many different garden areas, and I have mixed both uh, decorative plants as well as edible plants all in with each other. And yeah, maybe I'll pick these guys. What are you picking? Lettuce. I can't believe you can pick this much and then there's just always enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I have thousands of plants. (laughs) Because they are so isolated, Catherine and Wayne have to be almost entirely self-sufficient. They can go into town for some special ingredients, but they otherwise grow all of their own food. Living out here, you can't just get instant anything. So we can't just order a pizza. We have to make it ourselves. (laughs) We can't just go to the corner store and get something quickly. And while Catherine manages all of the gardening, Wayne handles the fishing. Well, you know, fishing is big for me, and I'm able to do that. It's the richest biomass on Earth. I have six species of cod, halibut, salmon, and just a phenomenal place. I just can get in my canoe and paddle out in 10 minutes so I can catch a fish. But when it's windy and too rough out there, I can just lay on the couch and fish out of the house. (laughs) He's not kidding. Wayne is actually sitting on his couch watching tennis with his fishing line dangling through a large hole in the floor. Got a fish laying on it. I was able to scrounge up some plexiglass from the Victoria Hockey Rink. I made a clear glass floor so that we can see the, as Catherine says, the ocean channel. And I can also lift the glass up and fish out of it. And their house is never really finished. 
They started 24 years ago, and it's constantly growing and changing and evolving. One question that I kept asking myself was why? Why would they go to these extremes to live in nature? A cabin in the woods is one thing. A floating island house built from scratch is on a whole nother level. Peppermint tea. Catherine and Wayne didn't always live in the middle of nowhere. I had lived in the big city. I knew what that was like. I get kind of jangled up inside. I have to speed up. The noise starts to uh, get to me. And I find that it's easy for me to lose my center. So when their kids grew up, they moved to this small town on the coast of British Columbia called Tofino. But it still wasn't enough. I wanted to be a successful, wealthy artist, live in Tofino, have a studio in the wilderness. And then they came across this beautiful, isolated cove, the perfect spot to build their studio. And a storm actually blew in the wood. So Wayne said, well, I guess we're being given a sign that this is the time to begin. But building there presented some challenges. Frequent winter storms meant a high risk of falling trees. The land surrounding the cove belonged to the government, and they couldn't really afford to buy anything. I was hoping to make a lot more money as an artist. We could never buy real estate, so we had to make our own. So instead of putting it on land, they decided to put their studio on the water. What a fantastic opportunity to actually float somewhere on the ocean in a protected place and do a project And being a wildlife artist, it was a great opportunity, a -a once-in-a-lifetime deal. I either kicked in and did it, or I was never going to do it at all. So Wayne built this one-room studio on the shore, hauled it out to sea, and... Floated beautifully, but that was the first time I'd ever built one. It was a dream for me to ever float. Catherine and Wayne loved their little floating studio. When you are floating, you're in nature, but you're not interfering with nature. Once I stop talking, uh, you're going to be how quiet it is. That's mm-hmm. one of the most alluring things you could have. They began to wonder what it would be like to live out in their studio full time. Out on the water, they'd still have to pay a small tax, but otherwise, they could live rent free. So, with only $2,500 in the bank, they decided to make the move. By living there, the home really started to grow and expand to what it is today. Everything's done with a handsaw and hammer. No power tools. I know every board and nail by name. I have 250,000 pieces, I think, at this point. And it's hard work between the gardening, wood chopping, cleaning, cooking, and building repairs, and of course, still finding time for their artwork. There's no quick fix living out here. You have to do the work to get what you want if you want it. We get hurricane force winds in here in big storms, mostly because it's a narrow entrance into this cove. The wind rockets in and whips around and changes direction. So it can be pretty fierce. Even with these storms and winter temperatures that can drop to the single digits, the biggest challenge isn't always Mother Nature. The hardest part for me living in the wilderness is being away from family. I have learned to work with that. But if someone is struggling, that's particularly hard. So if my parents are ill, that would be the hardest sort of situation for me. 
My brother said the first time he came to visit, could you have moved any further away? <laughs> and other than missing family, there's the usual couple stuff. I, on occasion, have different opinions than Wayne does about where I would like things or how I would like things, and we do have to discuss that. <laughs> and I want to incorporate what her needs are in the building and being able to know what her wants and needs are as a partner and come up with that. And yeah, we have to discuss it. After spending some time with Catherine and Wayne, I could tell their partnership was real and genuine. While they often work in tandem, they have each found their own ways to be happy. My passion is building. You have to really want to be active every day and do something for yourself that you think is worth doing. I'm a spiritual person. And so for me, over the 24-year period we've been here, the depth of my spirituality has grown. The depth of my connection with my inner self has grown. And that's what keeps me nourished. Wayne and Catherine have learned more than just how to survive out here. They've really learned to thrive. And they want to encourage others to follow in their footsteps. We're sharing the knowledge. It's free because we all did a little more and did things more independent. We'd all have a little more to share and prosper with and not depend just on the money. We can live uniquely, differently than anyone else on the planet. And I can't imagine living any other way. I feel completely fulfilled. <laughs> well, that's good, huh? <laughs> that's really nice. I'm working on it. Yeah, I'm getting too old to be fulfilled. But I'm working on it. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left. One hundred twenty-two meters. Two. South. Southeast. Southeast. If you're going to spend time on an island, you better arrive prepared. So who best to talk to than someone that's been doing it their whole life? I'm talking about John Peach. He is the Upper St. Lawrence River Keeper and the Executive Director of Save the River, a great organization that I'm proud to be involved with, all about making sure the Upper St. Lawrence River is clean and habitable and healthy. Hey, let's get John on the call here. John, welcome to Outdoors. Man, good to have you on the, uh, on the show. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Lawrence. Hey, man, you've been a, a lifelong inhabitant of an island on the uh, St. Lawrence River. You know all about those islands. You've got many, many of your board members and, and your volunteers from Save the River that love those islands with a passion. What kind of tips can you give us? Like, what are the things you need to have if you're going to go spend time on an island or the things that would be nice to have? Well, the first thing you've got to have, obviously, is a boat. And I always tell people one boat isn't enough because uh, you need several boats. Boats break down. Boats get taken away by uh, friends and other people that want to go fishing. But the only way you can get to these beautiful islands, at least the smaller ones, is to have a boat. And you've got to load in all your gear, your tools, your food, your clothing, uh, sometimes things that aren't quite so necessary to keep other members of the family happy and head out there to the islands. Getting there in the spring is always exhilarating. You know, quite often when I go out there, there's still ice in the river, so you got to dodge the ice flows and sometimes even 
pull your boat up on the ice to walk to the island. One of the first things you have to do is deal with getting the water on. The water has been off in most of these island houses all winter long. It's so cold that you have to drain down the systems, and starting up the water on an island can always be a, uh, a challenge. No matter how hard you work at draining the systems, pipes break, water pumps fail. Once you're up and running with the water system, the work becomes a little bit easier. Then, then you have to deal with raking off a winter's worth of leaves, cleaning off porches, taking down shutters, uh, and just opening the house up. To me, the most fun part of the process, once that work is done, is you then get to go down to the boathouse and start to put in the other boats that aren't just work boats but are more fun, like some of our beautiful wooden runabouts that the Thousand Islands is so famous for. Even that's not as easy as just pulling a chain or pushing a button and dropping them down because old boats take a lot of love. They take soaking. The engines have to be put back in running condition. It's a process. It's truly a labor of love. You've got electricity on your island? Well, the electricity comes on most of the islands. It comes underwater from the main power grid. Uh, so it'll come in an underwater cable over to the island and into a transformer, and then from the transformer into the house in a standard electrical hookup. When I was a kid growing up, the islands didn't have electricity, and we had these big old generators that they all seem to have a mind and a temperament of their own. I can remember as a kid, sometimes these things would just sort of start up in the middle of the night if the humidity got high and the contactors hit. We had to haul gasoline to them. It taught us a lot about how to work on big old clunky engines and a lot about basic DC electricity. Yeah, and how to get along without electricity because who wants to keep firing up the generator all the time, right? Well, not only that, but it the gasoline for the generator was very expensive and had to be hauled in five-gallon cans. And my father didn't really want to pay for electricity for us when we could do it other ways. I think that's the beauty of an island. Uh, it, it's the idea of being disconnected from the rest of the world. Growing up in the islands taught me, and I see it with so many of my friends and now our kids and even our grandkids, it teaches you a resourcefulness because you can't just get in a car and run down to a hardware store and get something new to replace it. Uh, it also makes you a little bit of a, a pack rat. You never throw anything away on the island. You know, even if, if it's a spark plug that was only running 50%, that might be better than nothing on some cold, stormy night. So you save everything, and you basically recycle it. I mean, hmm. You just don't throw things away. That's a good ethic to have for anything, right, in life. I mean, I'm not saying promoting, you know, pack ratting or anything, but, uh, yeah, on an island, you gotta, you got to take care of what you got. John, I remember you mentioning Dr. Robert Russell, and I, I read his book. What an amazing guy. He is a hero of mine to have done everything that we all did in the islands, and yet he was blind, just to me, is extraordinary. I mean, that book, should be on a, the forefront of anybody's reading list that has ever been on a lake, in the islands, on a river. Uh, guy was an extraordinary person. And I love this story, which I know you've heard about being fishing out there, and he's blind, and the bell goes off every 15 minutes, and that's how he knows where he is. And he ran into a neighbor who was concerned he was out in the fog one day, 
and Russell didn't know he was in the fog. He was blind. He was just out fishing. <laughs> and this guy raised his daughters out there. You know, he, he really, really loved that island life. Ended up buying his own island, bought an old girl's camp and turned that all around and just became an island. Uh, I mean, yeah, he didn't live there year round. He was a professor, but every chance he could, he was there, wasn't he? He was, he was truly a river rat. And, you know, that's the greatest compliment anybody who lives in the islands can pay to somebody else. John, thank you so much for joining us on Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunterman, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Hey, I'll be there for your uh, AGM, my friend. I'm, I'm in. I'm looking forward to it, and all of our members are excited that you'll be there, Lawrence. You know, I could talk about my own experiences being on islands, traveling to islands, getting stuck on islands in windy weather and storms. But I think what you really want to do is contact Sella, contact your library, get your hands on The Island. That's the name of the book by Rob Russell. And listen to that book, man. Here's a guy that just fell in love with islands and would not let it go, raise his kids there, figured it all out, and just had a great time doing it. What a great storyteller. What a great book. The Island by Rob Russell. You've been listening to Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. We'll get back together again next week. Thanks for tuning in. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. We're dropping new episodes every Friday, folks. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments on your podcast provider's site so other people will learn about our new show. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.